As usual, on Sunday, we try to share what's been going on during the week. And this week, we've had a retreat, silent retreat, called Grasses, Trees, and the Great Earth. Uh, it's one of our unusual retreats, which we do in the middle of summer so that we can do a lot of sitting out of doors. Sitting, including uh, sitting under trees, and including sitting under trees in the dark without flashlights. So finding your way to the tree, <clears throat> sitting in the tree in, with the tree in the dark, and then finding your way back out. It's very amusing in some ways because there's all kinds of crashing and ow things in the forest as <laughs> people bumble their way around. Uh, but the senses open in a very different way when uh, we can't see very well. And when fear arises. So for most people, fear arises when they're in the forest at night. Most of us are city-raised or civilization-raised, and we're not used to being in the forest. The first time we did this retreat, we were at a retreat center that, where the building cast, like it does here, um, a little circle of light or an area of light around the building, and then the forest began. And one person asked me, could he sit right at the edge of where the light was on one side and the dark was on the other side. So if he got scared, he could look over towards the building and then his fear would die down. Uh, we probably all have our own version of that. Well, at least I can see the sky or at least I can see a star or at least I can see the moon. Something to anchor us because to step into that utter darkness is uh, hair-raising. But it also opens the eyes and ears and nose and mind uh, in a beautiful way, in an unusual way, a very instructional. It's very instructional to let fear arise and to just sit still with us, with it. This is one of the, the simplest and most important aspects of our practice, is to let whatever arises arise and just sit still with it. Because karma means volitional action. When we set karma into motion, then it keeps rolling forward inexorably. And every time we move our body, every time we speak, even every time we think, although that's much more subtle, we're setting a train of volitional action in motion. So to sit still is, um, it, it's profound. It, it's profound because karma will keep on going. The I didn't bring my little demonstration, but Newton's little swinging balls are, is, is exactly a, a karma machine, karma demonstrating machine. So it's, you know the little balls that are suspended in a row, and if you pull one out and you let it go, it hits the ones in the middle. They don't move, but the one over here moves. And then when it hits the others, then this one moves. And if you pull two, then two come out and so on. So this, if there weren't any friction, this would keep going forever. If you, if you act, and then that impacts everybody else, then there'll be a reaction to it. And then that reaction will cause another reaction, boing, and another reaction, boing. There's no friction in the system. It'll keep on going forever. That's karma. That's a demonstration of karma. So how do you stop that from happening? You, ha you stop it from happening by holding one of the balls still so that, that that impulse is not transmitted. Or even better, take a ball out, even empty space. Then that 
that momentum doesn't get transferred through to everything else in the world. So this is what we mean by saving all sentient beings. It's freeing ourselves and then freeing those around us who are trapped in our delusion of a small, pitiful, broken self that has to be defended and protected against everything else that's outside of it. So sitting still seems hard when we're doing it, uh, but it seems ridiculously simple. Oh, why couldn't I sit still? Uh, but it has profound effects. To let fear arise and to sit still with, us, with it has profound effects. We, we learn then what the fear is really about. So, for example, one person said that uh, they were sitting and all of a sudden they heard this crashing and their mind's reaction was, what the hell is that? And then, they, then came, here came this little bird. So the mind blows something up into some horrible situation, dangerous situation, it turns out to be nothing. That happens all the time to us, right? All the time. That our mind, our mind is a disaster monger. It's always looking for danger and then even inventing danger where it doesn't exist. And unfortunately, in this modern society, we, we're just crammed full every day of information about what to be afraid of. So as, as uh, Gyokuko, the teacher at Dharma Rain, once commented, she said, people are born afraid because their parents were afraid before they were born. Their parents were afraid of, oh, you know, have I done anything to harm the baby? And I fell down and I smoked one cigarette or I had one drink or I went to a high altitude or I didn't take my vitamins one day or maybe we don't have the right car seat or maybe that one's discontinued and there's another one that's better. And there's, there's a million things to be afraid of and things we don't even know yet to be afraid of because they haven't discovered them yet and they haven't informed us yet. We have to be informed ahead of time and know the latest science and find out what to be afraid of because we might die. Well, here's the news. We are going to die. But all that fear gets blown up into something enormous. And then it drives us. Or common here is if people hear the coyotes howling. They, we haven't told them there are coyotes and then they go out in the forest at night and then they hear the coyotes howling. And that's, that is really, what the hell? What is that? <laughs> what is that? It's a bunch of women screaming? What is it? <laughs> They're really spectacular. And we have two, at least two, packs down in the marshlands. They seldom come up here. But once in a while, they come right out here and, and owl. That, that is hair-raising. Um, and so the, the same man who said that he, um, <laughs> he wanted to sit right in that borderline between the light and the dark, rather than all the way in the forest. Well, the next night he crept a few inches into the dark, into the forest, with his back to the light. I thought that was very brave. But he said he just, he just sat there with his eyes squeezed shut, just waiting for the coyotes to bite his feet, just waiting for the coyotes to bite his toes. <laughs> so coyotes aren't particularly interested in us, but we still were afraid of coyotes and mountain lions. You know, they jump out of the darkness down on you. And the mind just couldn't invent all this, all this stuff to be afraid of. But what one person discovered, which I thought was very interesting, is that that person went expecting, oh, I'm going to be afraid. Everybody says, oh, yeah, you get afraid in the forest. But they weren't afraid of the animals in the forest. But, but then great anxiety and fear aroused that maybe they hadn't heard the bell to come back in. Maybe people were looking for them and they were inconveniencing people. So the, then what will people think of me because I've caused all this trouble? So there's a whole... Uh, file drawer full of fear, of fear. Hmm? 
that we can have that are different from the physical fears, the social fears. Huge problem. And then fear of pain. Fear of pain, well, of course, we don't want to court pain. That's not a good idea. Uh, So we have this inborn fear of large, ferocious animals. We don't go up and try to befriend them. Um, And we have this inborn fear of pain. That's good in general, but it's become a complete neurosis and taken over our minds. So we're so afraid of pain that mosquitoes drive us crazy, which is what many people find in the forest, that having this little tiny wisp of a creature land on you and walk around hair by hair, trying to decide where to drill in, and then waiting agonizingly long for it to drill in, and then having it drill in. and Really, you know, the pain, when you really look at it, the pain is nothing of a mosquito bite, but there's this psychic pain around the mosquito bite. Oh, no. Especially now that we know about West Nile disease and West Nile diseases in Oregon. So again, the mind just blows it up into this huge huge disaster from this tiny little, little tiny touch almost, little tiny pinprick, and then maybe a little bit of itching afterwards. It turns into something huge and very aversive that we have to get rid of, and our instincts are just get rid of it, get rid of it, get rid of it. So to sit still while a mosquito walks around on, on his newfound hunk of, of food, gigantic hunk of food. One of my, I always, <laughs> one way to sit still with mosquitoes walking on you is to think of the cartoon. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's, it's one of those Gary Larson cartoons where the skin is blown up enormous and the hairs are like big spears. And there are two mosquitoes and one has drilled in. And the one that's drilled in is, is blown up like this huge balloon and the other mosquito is saying, pull out, pull out, you've hit an artery. <laughs> so, so if you think of that while you're sitting and the mosquitoes are trying to bite you, it'll turn it into something funny from something terribly dangerous. Or being walked around on, that's a little more anxiety-provoking, by a wasp or a hornet. Let them walk around on you. And, you know, they love a little bit of moisture on your skin, a little bit of salt. They go around sampling, sampling with their little jaws, and you just hope their little jaws won't mistake a little bit of you for salt, and sometimes they do. Or bees or nettles. Last night I went and sat in some nettles. That was very interesting. Not on purpose, although we have here, because people get so worked up about getting stung by nettles, we have passed nettles around the breakfast table, which is when we do our plant study, and invited people to purposely rub some nettles on their skin to see what it is like so you can get over the fear of being stung by a bee or a wasp, being stung by nettles. Because when we can sit still with one of those fears and just not do anything, not move, not move, then that that rut of, oh, this is a thing to be afraid of, I must get rid of it in some way, that rut doesn't get worn down deeper. That habit pattern doesn't become more ingrained. So we begin to change things. In those very, very small ways, we begin to change our entire life one tiny moment of change at a time. So when we don't move, we're taking that ball out from the middle of of the Newton machine. Taking the ball out from the middle, something happens, a mosquito bites us, and then nothing else happens. So that moment in time is exactly a moment in time, and then it disappears, and it doesn't start a whole chain of, of karma. 
of course, of course, all of these are related to fear of death. And one person was sitting in a nice little grove of trees and described lying down at a certain point and looking up and seeing there was a gigantic branch dangling by a little thread above them, high above them. So that's an interesting way to sit, to know that this branch could come tra crashing down. And we discovered sitting in the forest at night that branches do come crashing down all by themselves. They just suddenly crash. Very interesting to find out and then have one hanging over your head. In fact, in, uh, in extreme conditions, this is not happening now, but uh, in extreme uh, drought conditions, uh, trees will actually amputate limbs. I found that out from a biologist. They, they, if they, they, don't, they can't uh, afford to have all that leaf surface transpiring uh, water, so they will purposely cut off a limb and it'll come crashing down. So to sit with that, with uh, fear of death, so a little bit of a little bit of fear is excellent for keeping one awake uh, while sitting. And I mentioned that the monks of uh, in ancient times used to devise various ways to stay awake. One of which was to sit on the rim, narrow rim of a deep well uh, in the nighttime, uh, knowing that if you nodded off, in you'd go, and you probably would drown at least be badly injured, so that would help, help keep awake, keep us awake. So a little bit of fear is, can be, we can use it. Uh, once, once we begin to work with it in a creative way, we can actually use it in creative ways and not be driven crazy by it. Actually, if we could transcend the fear of death, and that doesn't mean you drive 150 miles an hour in a 50 mile an hour zone, as somebody did this week, uh, out on our highway out here, um, not transcending the fear of death in that stupid way, but transcending it moment by moment, watching it arise, and then checking, is this really realistic? Is that little tiny prick from a mosquito mean my imminent death? Or could I really sit through that? Could I allow the mosquito one drop of my blood as a gift? So to transcend these fears that drive us literally crazy, physical fears or social fears, to sit and examine them and study them and not be moved about by them. This makes the rest of our life so much easier. Recently, there's tremendous fear of food. I mentioned this in this, for my own experience, we talk about our own experience at the end of retreats. There's so much fear of food now. It's a kind of, it's a luxury of developed countries and they don't, in, 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 in Africa, we've lived in very, very poor countries like Africa, like I have. There, whatever people have, they're dying to eat. You know? They're literally dying to eat. And, and, and anything you give them, they, they will eat. Food sensitivities really don't exist. But, but here we have the luxury of having all kinds of food sensitivities. And of course, there are some people who are allergic, uh, genuinely allergic, and go into anaphylactic reaction anaphylaxis meaning you can't breathe and you could die or your heart could stop, to such things as peanuts. So peanut allergy is very, very new. Didn't seem to exist until after World War II when we began eating peanut butter and a lot of, a lot of peanuts. And there are some kids, not a lot, but there are some who can have severe reactions to peanuts. But as a result, the whole society has gone peanuts-phobic, right? So now everything's labeled could have been made in a place that could have had peanuts in it a hundred years ago. We're not sure, so don't eat it. 
Um, and we hear folk, folk myths about somebody who ate peanut butter and then four hours later kissed somebody and they died, and which is not true. But fear, then, you know, we, t we seize on this fear and we become afraid. And so normal symptoms in the body, and the body is always producing symptoms, comfort, discomfort, gas pains, and so on, get over-interpreted. Uh, and then we decide, oh, we're sensitive to this and we're sensitive to that. The research actually shows that when you do true, detailed testing of what, of the maybe 30 things somebody, or 15 things somebody thinks that they're allergic to or sensitive to, it turns out they might be reactive to one or two at the most. But the mind blows up some minor reaction or minor bodily change, maybe completely unrelated to what you ate, and turns it into this big thing, food sensitivities and food allergies, which is just epidemic right now. And um, one of the uh, very interesting things they've found is that at first, uh, medical science gave in to the fear. So medical science said, oh, well, we mustn't feed children peanuts until they're two years old. That's, that was the gospel until last year. Now, the, now the, the thinking is changing completely, that that's actually increased food allergies, that protecting everybody against various foods is increasing the incidence of food allergies. So what they've done with some of these kids who are quite allergic, in terms of like anaphylaxis, allergic to peanuts, is they're desensitizing them. So they give them a little peanut dust and a little more peanut dust every day, a little bit more. And they've got a whole crew of them now that can eat up to 13 peanuts. So there goes this terrible fear that they and their parents were immersed in on a daily basis, that they would somehow accidentally eat a peanut and die, or kiss somebody who had eaten a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and die. Gone. How is it gone? By taking in the very thing that you're afraid of. It's a beautiful lesson. So a year, year, over a year and a half ago, about a year and a half ago, we had gone to China. And after I came back, I had various gastrointestinal problems. And I won't bore you with the details. And, <laughs> you know, went through Western medicine, alternative medicine, Chinese pills, acupuncture, the whole thing doesn't, hasn't changed it at all. So then I thought, well, maybe I'm, I have food sensitivities because... Um, this, it stands me to rights because I've always been irritated by people with food sensitivities, so I must have food sensitivities now, so I can learn what it's really like to have food sensitivities and be more compassionate to people with a million food sensitivities. So I've gone through a whole, over a year now, thinking, oh, it's this, or it's that, and it's this, and oh, it's that, and sort of gradually eliminating things from my diet. And I just had my 64th birthday, and I decided... I've had it with this. This is ridiculous. I'm just creating a prison for myself out of all of this hyper-awareness about, oh, does this cause this little irritation in my mouth or get more gas or whatever. So I decided for my birthday, which was last week, I would give up food sensitivities. And I did. And it was great. It was great. You know? I still have some gas and some diarrhea, this little gas, this and that. But so what? I have a body. I have a human body. So what? I just, I highly recommend it. The stepping out into freedom is just wonderful. And then it frees up all the people around me who are like hovering. Oh, did you accidentally get some chocolate? Or oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to give you special cereal for breakfast. And forget it. Forget it. Free myself, free you. 
you know, I'm probably I'm not going to eat a whole lot of chocolate because in the past it's caused blisters in my mouth. So I'll just like desensitize myself gradually. I'm now up to a little tiny bit of chocolate, a couple of chips of chocolate, no problem. So gradually I will take the practical road and desensitize myself and then live a freer life. So speaking of that, fear of dirt is epidemic in our society and we spend a lot of time with the earth element and, and dirt, sitting in the dirt, getting dirty uh, this, during this session. And I would like to read you about a little bit of a study about, it's called Babies Know a Little Dirt is Good for You. Ask mothers why babies are constantly picking up things from the ground or the floor and putting them in their mouths. And the chances are they'll say that it's instinctive. That's how babies explore the world. When my young sons were exploring the streets of Brooklyn, I couldn't help but wonder how good crushed rock or dried dog droppings could taste when delicious mashed potatoes were routinely rejected. Since all instinctive behaviors have an evolutionary advantage or they would not have been retained for millions of years, chances are that this one, too, has helped us survive as a species. And indeed, accumulating evidence strongly suggests that eating dirt is good for you. In studies of what is called the hygiene hypothesis, researchers are concluding that organisms like the millions of bacteria, viruses, and especially worms that enter the body along with the dirt spur the development of a healthy immune system. Several continuing studies suggest that worms may help to redirect an immune system that has gone awry and resulted in autoimmune disorders, allergies, and asthma. These studies, along with epidemiological observations, seem to explain why immune system disorders like multiple sclerosis, type 1 diabetes, inflammatory bowel disease, asthma, and allergies have risen significantly in the United States and other developed countries. In studies on mice, they have used worms, given the mice worms, to prevent and reverse autoimmune disease. In Argentina, they found that patients with multiple sclerosis who were in purposely infected with human whipworm had milder cases and fewer flare-ups of their disease over a four-and-a-half-year period. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Dr. Fleming, a neurologist, is testing whether pig, whip, pig whipworm can temper the effects of multiple sclerosis. In Gambia, the eradication of worms in some villages has led to children's having increased skin reactions to allergens. Mm -hmm. And they've used pig whipworm with good effects in treating inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, and ulcerative colitis. Kind of goes against what we would think, that if you have ulcerative colitis and inflammatory bowel disease, you should take a little dose of worms, but that turns out to be a good treatment. A typical human probably harbors some 90 trillion microbes. The very fact that you have so many microbes of so many different kinds is what keeps you healthy most of the time. Children should be allowed to go barefoot, play in the dirt, and not have to wash their hands when they come in to eat. <laughs> also helpful is to let kids have two dogs and a cat, which will expose them to intestinal worms that can promote a healthy immune system. <laughs> So your kids can use that as ammunition. Please, can we have a puppy? Please, can we have a puppy? I'll be so much healthier if we have a puppy. It'll give me worms, and then I won't have... <laughs> <laughs> so not only should we make friends with the earth, we should be eating more earth. I told this story before, but many of you didn't hear it. When I went to give a book reading at 
Powell's in, in Portland. And they were setting me up. They said, would you like some water to drink? And I said, well, I guess so. My mouth might get dry. So they said, well, would it, they said with fear, obvious fear and anxiety, would it be okay if we just brought you an open glass of water from the faucet over there, which is where their coffee bar was? And I said, yes. Why not? And they said, oh, well, some people only drink bottled water. And I said, no, I have this thing against bottled water because <laughs> I won't bore you with the details, but <laughs> the hormones that are hormone mimics that are in plastic that leach into the water, bottled water is not good for you. Uh, so I said, no, I'd be happy to have an open glass of water. So they brought it over and put it down. And I was explaining to the assistant, I said, you know, I just have this thing we, that we're so phobic about, about, the, about dirt. And he said, yes, you know, we have this cashier up in the front, and, um, and, and she just thinks this whole thing about dirt is just crazy. And so once in a while, when nobody's looking, she licks her finger and she rubs it over the cash register. And then <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was really great. Good for her. Introduce me to that lady. <laughs> So bee stings, we're afraid of bee stings, but bee stings are a time-honored treatment for arthritis, actually. And we may discover that bee stings, wasp stings, are a wonderful treatment for chronic pain. So let's do a survey here about chronic pain. How many people would say they have chronic pain, meaning every day they experience physical pain? Raise your hand if you say every day you experience physical pain in your body. Yeah, the kind of, you know, nuisance, nuisance pain in the same place doesn't, doesn't just go if you get up and move around. Yeah, so see, a lot of people experience chronic pain. Very, very common. You have a human body, you're going to experience pain. If you don't experience pain, you're in bad trouble. Lepers don't experience pain, that's why they lose fingers, because they keep injuring them, because they don't experience pain. So pain, experiencing pain is a good thing, <clears throat> up to a certain point. Um, how about mental pain? How many people experience mental pain on a daily basis? Everybody raise your hand. Come on, you liars. <laughs> Everybody experiences mental pain. The pain of living in a world where people suffer so much. Where people suffer so much that they have to hurt each other to get some relief from their own suffering. I mean, it's crazy, this world of samsara. Or people are suffering so much that they have to anesthetize themselves. Why? Why do we have to anesthetize ourselves with various means? Why do we have to escape ourselves? As I mentioned in Sashin, because we were looking at uh, one of Dogen Zenji's passages, when the truth does not fill our body or mind, we think that we have enough. We think that we can accumulate enough. If we just get everything right, if we get the whole world right and everybody cooperating with us, then then we could be happy. I mean, that's what most people's lives are about, trying to construct a perfect little environment around them and then make everybody behave, control everybody, so they'll be happy. And it's, it's a doom. It's doomed to failure. It'll never work. People just don't cooperate. They don't behave the way I think they're supposed to behave. Oh, is that a surprise? Because they're trying to get you to cooperate and behave the way they think you should behave to make them happy. So it's never going to work, that kind of project. To have enough and to control enough will never make us happy. But when the truth does not fill our body and mind, we think that we have enough. When the truth fills our body and mind, we realize that something is missing. 
So that's what's at the bottom of our suffering. We realize that something is missing, but we don't know what it is. What is missing? What is missing is not a thing. What is missing is not something we can hold on to or control or get or give away. What's missing is not you, not me. What's missing is emptiness. So I gave the example of Michael Jackson, who died because he was trying to escape from himself, from being Michael Jackson, who had everything. Everything people could imagine that, that they would want. A zoo, an amusement park. You know, people just lavishing attention on him all the time, wanting to be his friend. Millions of dollars. Lots of houses. All the clothes he wanted, all the fame, everything that he wanted, that anyone would think they would want. He had it all. And yet, he died because he was trying to escape himself by anesthetizing himself into oblivion, into a deep sleep, and then wake up somehow refreshed. Well, that's really what meditation is, you know? And it's a little safer than (laughs) using an anesthetic. Meditation is putting the self to sleep, stepping into the not-self, stepping into everything that we think isn't us, but actually is us, out here. But escaping this, this prison that we've constructed inside our own mind. Stepping outside of it and into what we call the other, the fearsome other. Stepping into emptiness and letting it be filled, as Dogen Zenji said, by the 10,000 dharmas. The beauty of the 10,000 dharmas, when we're really present with them, why is it so important to find this missing piece, this missing piece of emptiness. Because it's only when we're empty that we experience true intimacy. And that is our real longing in life, is to be intimate, to close the gap between us and other. Trying to control everything is the opposite of that. Trying to accumulate everything is the opposite of that. Becoming empty within ourselves then suddenly everything is there as us, as one. Dogen Zenji said, Know that in this way there are myriads of forms and hundreds of grasses throughout the entire earth, and yet each grass and each form itself is the entire earth. Each moment is all being, is the entire world. Reflect now whether any being or any world is left out of the present moment, of the perfection of the present moment. Nothing is left out of the perfection of the present moment, and that includes you. Each piece of existence is a doorway into the whole, into the one whole, when we empty ourselves out. Each piece of existence is a doorway into the whole, and that includes you. You are a doorway into the whole. You are the whole. But to experience that, we have to stop and empty ourselves. We have to empty ourselves of constant activity, constant distraction. We have to sit still with the mind quiet, radically still and radically present with anything, with everything, 
including ourselves. And then the doorway into sacred oneness will open. The irony is we're so afraid to be empty. We're afraid for our mouth to be empty. So we're always eating and drinking. We're afraid for our stomach to be empty. We're afraid for the hours of our day to be empty. We're afraid for our mind to be empty. So we're constantly reading and watching TV and looking at the computer, thinking, working. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid to be bored? Are we afraid to be lonely? Are we afraid to be useless? What are we afraid of? Somehow we're afraid of emptiness, but it is in emptiness that we find what we are longing for. Complete intimacy. The simple joy. Wonder. Adventure and complete satisfaction. Not needing anything more than this. I'll read you some poems from The Gift that speak of this gift, the gift of emptiness. This is called What the Hell? The real love I always keep a secret. All my words are sung outside her window. For when she lets me in, I take a thousand oaths of silence. But then she says, oh, then God says, what the hell, Hafiz? Why not give the whole world my address? The whole world is the address of God. Somehow we've lost it. A still cup. For God to make love, for the divine alchemy to work, the pitcher needs a still cup. The pitcher needs a still cup, a still empty cup. Why ask Hafiz to say anything more about your most vital requirement? This is called The Fish and I Will Chat. Once in a while, the fish and I will chat in the silent language. You could insert tree or dandelion here. Once in a while, the dandelion and I will chat in the silent language. We look into each other's eyes and smile, and they often say, Hey, Hafiz, we see you know the joy of our existence. We see you have discovered how meditation can free you from land, mind, debts, alimony, the whole works. And like us, let you carouse all day in God. This is the, dedicated to the person who had such a good time with a puddle. It's called Two Puddles Chatting. It rained during the night, and two puddles formed in the dark and began chatting. One said, it is so nice to at last be upon this earth and to meet you as well. But what will happen when the brilliant sun comes and turns us back into spirit again? Dear ones, enjoy the night as much as you can. Why ever trouble your hearts with flight when you have just arrived and your body is so full of warm desires and look, so many meadows of soft hair are planted upon you? Why ever trouble yourself with God when he is so unjudging and kind unless you are blessed and live near the circle of a perfect one. 
And this is one related to pain, to chron- the chronic pain of, of living as a human being. If you don't stop that is the name. I used to live in a cramped house with confusion and pain, but then I met the friend and started getting drunk and singing all night. Confusion and pain started acting nasty, making threats with talk like this. If you don't stop that, all that fun, we're leaving. And this, uh, one of my favorite poems from Mary Oliver, which we use in our class on preparing for your own death. When death comes, when death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut. When death comes like the measle pox, we could say swine flu. When death comes like the swine flu, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea. And I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and is singular, and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending as all music does towards silence. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, Horacium, Taraxacum, Crepus, Dandelion, tending as all music does towards silence, and each body a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. It takes courage to live in this world of samsara. It takes courage to step into emptiness. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. So please do a simple and essential thing. Spend some time every day sitting still. Three breaths, the mind completely still. Opening the door to intimacy. Thank you. Thank you.